Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for who you are, for the revelation of your word, for the power of your spirit, and we pray that you would come, and as we spend time talking about who you are, talking about how you made us to be, and looking at your word, that your spirit would be here and that you would give life to these words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I want to start off uh, today by a little bit differently than we, we normally do. Um, we have talked around this, and I have felt like I've talked about it, um, but many people don't feel like I've given a full explanation of the rule of life. Um, and so if you have yours, you can grab it. If not, it's up on the screen. Um, and I just want to talk about the rule of life a little bit and, and uh, kind of explain what we're doing here because we're in the part of Inhabit where this is playing a central role. If you have been doing your readings, you'll know that we've started reading each week about a different section of this, and that's going to continue as we move forward. Um, so just as a brief uh, reminder, the rule of life is based on St. Benedict's rule that he set up for his monastic community, and he wasn't the one who invented this. Monastic communities had had rules or some sort of guiding principles since their foundation. Um, I was recently reading uh, St. Athanasius's Life of St. Anthony. St. Anthony was one of these desert fathers. He was one of these guys very early in the church's history who just felt God calling him to go out in the desert, to leave society, and spend life in the Spirit. And we are indebted to these people who, who learned so much about the life of the Spirit. But what, what would happen is these monks would go away into the desert, and they would want to spend their time in solitude, just being with the Spirit. But then other people would come and be like, hey, you seem really wise. I want to learn from you. And so while all, they, all these hermits wanted to do was get away from people, people kept following them throughout the desert and wanting to learn from them. So eventually, people like St. Anthony set up monasteries, the, the first early form of a monastery. And, and it was actually a way to get away from people. They'd be like, all right, all of you live here. And I'll come every once in a while and talk to you about life in the Spirit, but I'm going to live over here. Uh, it sounds like a great plan. Uh, it's a really, really good way of doing it. But um, So they've always had these rules, but ultimately, the rule of life is a, a, an approach to, it, it's an intentional approach to discipleship. Uh, so often in the Christian world, in the modern times, Discipleship is not something that is done intentionally or methodically. It is something that's done sort of haphazardly and sort of we grab different things at different times and move through life in the church. Um, and it's not something we sit down and plan out. And I think that that's a big failure. Um, we are never going to trip and fall into holiness uh, that is not how holiness works. That is not how Christ-like virtue works. It's not going to just suddenly wake up one day and you're like, wow, I now have the virtue of patience. Wow, I now have the virtue of justice. This just happened overnight while I slept. That's not how it happens. It is, a, it is something that we intentionally do. And, and the rule of life um, was originally a guiding principle for these communities. But uh, throughout church history, other people caught on to this as a way of living out a personal uh, intentional, methodic approach to following Jesus. And so there are different aspects to the rule of life, but ultimately that's, at, its, at its core, that's all it is. All it is is sitting down and thinking, okay, how can I be intentional about what I do on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, on an annual basis, in these different categories to make sure that I'm intentionally following Jesus and growing in those. And the rule of life, in, in my opinion, is something that should change over time, um, but not change haphazardly, change intentionally, right? Um, it, it, this is going to sound like a bit of an aside, but one of the things that I'm fascinated with, uh, I'm fascinated with the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church. One of the reasons I'm fascinated with the or Orthodox Church is because of their history. The Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, you know, originally there was kind of... Uh, once the church organized, they were all one church. The Catholic Church is what they called themselves. The Roman Catholic Church came later. It was originally just the Catholic Church. And then uh, there was this real big debate over one little phileku clause that, that the, some people wanted to add into the Nicene Creed. doesn't matter, but there was a split. Okay? Location-wise, the Eastern Orthodox um, Church was located in what his, history would show would be the harder place to be a Christian. 
Because as uh, Islam rose, as the Muslim religion rose and was very fervent, very militant about eradicating other religions, that was all around them, right? And that was all in that part of the world. But one of the things I find fascinating is in these parts of the world, in the Irans, the Iraqs, the Afghanistans, the Turkeys, you can still to this day find churches that have existed since the four, five hundreds. In, in a context like that where for, uh, in some places, for a thousand years, it has been illegal to be a Christian, to not be a Muslim, you can still find these communities, right? And what you find in these communities is that the people who go there did not one day wander into it and say, hey, this looks interesting and different, I want to become a Christian, what you find there is that these people's parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents and great-great-great-grandparents were all members of the same church. And they passed the faith down from one generation to the next. There is a huge statistical difference between, if you look at the different denominations, different parts of Christianity, between Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant religions in how well they pass their faith down to their children. How well the faith stays from generation to generation. There's a huge statistical difference. I've been thinking about this. If you, if you were in 945 uh, this morning, you heard this a little bit. Um, but I've been thinking about this because I've been reflecting on being 100 years um, uh, uh, the, our church being 100 years old and looking at that next 100 years and what does that look like, P particularly what does that look like in the society we live in today. Um, over the past 100 years, we had this big boom where it became the thing to be a suburban church and people just rushed in because it was the thing to do. And maybe there were, you know, there, there's, there's arguments that you can say that was a genuine conversion thing and then you, there's an argument you can make that it was the new country club in the suburbs, right? But when I look forward, I don't know if I see something like that happening. And so I think to myself, okay, how is the church going to survive? Well, for one, you know, God has to move, and we have to see some people convert. We have to be a, be a, 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 a missional people. But another thing I think that is so important is the fact that we pass our beliefs down. There, and I don't want to be alarmist, and I, and I said this. If you weren't in 945, this is going to be a little bit hard. Uh, if you were in 945, this is going to be very repetitive, but... When, when I look at the strands, the trends in the world today, I think there's many different ways our society could go. And I think there are some legitimate ones that where, where if we keep following this strand, if things work out that way, that the church could be in a really hard place um, in 20, 30 years, right? Where Christianity is not what we have known it to be in America anymore. Um, and if we go that way, what's going to matter is not how pretty the buildings are that we made or the programs we had going. I really think what's gonna matter in that day is how well we discipled our children, how well we instituted our faith, because there are ebbs and flows in this. There are movements in history where it is popular and it is easy to be a Christian and then it is not. And the strands of Christianity that survive that are the strands that know how to pass their faith down. I say that in relation to the rule of life because I think there is something to the way that the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church um, imagine or, or construct being a Christian that is different than the way Protestants do. One of the key differences is what Protestants often critique about Catholics is that religiosity. Right? That, that, that religiousness that happened that comes with being Catholic or being Orthodox. And, and what it really is, is habits. It is very, sometimes very legalistic, sure. Sometimes not explained, not done well, sure. But one of the big differences between the conceptions of what it means to be a Christian is if you ask a Protestant, most often we say things like, well, it's having Jesus in our heart. Right? If you ask a, 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 a devout Catholic, it's going to Mass and confession, right? Partaking in the Lenten fast. It's these very practical, hands on, habitual things. And what I find fascinating is having Jesus in our heart in the Protestant world somehow doesn't translate to always having Jesus in our home. 
the way that having these rhythms and routines that can be very legalistic and unhelpful translate into a household that understands the beats of the church, right? I just find that to be fascinating. And statistically, it's just, you can't argue with it, the, di- the, the, the drastic difference between how Catholics and Orthodox pass down the faith and Protestants have struggled to do so. That's why, I mean, I mean if you just look at the history of Europe, right? Western Europe, where, mo- where the, the bulk of Protestant denominations flourished, was the first to fall when modernism came into Western Europe in, in their history. Because their children did not have that embedded into their bones. So, tangent aside. The rule of life is getting back to a more tangible, what I tend to think of as a more ancient approach to following Jesus. It is a methodical, intentional decision made of here's the rhythms that are going to move me through life. Here's the commitments that I'm going to organize my time around, right? And there's different categories in this. And I've got a little bit of a different way of naming them than the book we're reading does. The book we're reading does it all with T's, time, temple, talent, all that kind of stuff. Um, And and, and as the guy who says people place purpose, I'm I'm tired of things that start with the same uh, letter. So... um, but there's different, there's different um, aspects, you know. Uh, so, so if you have your rule of life, let's look at it. I want to go from the top to the bottom. The central desire, we read Machia's chapter on desire a couple weeks ago, a couple of sessions ago. I don't know how long ago it was. Time is irrelevant to me at this point. Um, but central desire, this is something, and, and, and I think this can be, go a lot of different ways, but Machia talks about uh, this in the sense of, like, who is it, what, what is your... Um, desire out of who you are and who God has called you to be. Um, I see this personally. When I look at the central desire, I put like, okay, in this next season of my life, what is, when I come to the end of that season, whether it's a couple of years or a year, what's the chief thing I want to see that I've grown in? or that I've seen come to fruition, right? A couple of years ago, my central desire was, was looking at this catechumenate thing and, and think of how does that fit in today's world? And that's still, I'm still in that sort of time of that's my central desire, my central passion um, as, as, a, as a person who's in the world and trying to be about what God has called me to be. So central desire, but that could be anything from uh, something like that to uh, my central desire is to see myself in a more dedicated Christian marriage to, for our marriage to go from being roommates to being true spiritual partners. And so having that as a central desire for you, it could be, you know, I want to, I, I would really like to see my children come to know Jesus in a deeper way. Right? Uh, it could be, you know, I want to be a more intentional Christian at school and, and be the kind of person who is compassionate and merciful and, and people know me as that Christian here. Right? It can be anything, but it has to do with who you are in the world, the, the, where God has you. Right? Um, and so, yeah. Chief virtue and chief vice. Um, I think one of the ways that we stumble in our discipleship is we hear the call that be holy like God is holy. And, that there, and then we say, okay, here's who God is. And we've looked at that, right? We've looked at the characteristics of God. Here's who I am. There's a huge gap between who I am and who God is, right? And so I think sometimes we get overwhelmed. And so we think there's so much I need to change to become like God, and then what that ends up doing is we, we don't really focus on any of them. I am just a firm believer of, and this comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3, where he, uh, uh, Peter says that God's divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own uh, glory, that we might become partakers of the divine nature. Therefore, add to your, and then he lists these virtues, and he lists them one at a time. And he says, add to your faithfulness brotherly, brotherly love, 
right? So first there's that faithfulness point, and then there's, it's this idea of an intentional movement through these things. And so I just think it's helpful to identify specific virtues and specific vices that we are going to focus on for a period of time. Uh, this is something that the 945 small groups used to do and be really intentional about. Hopefully we're still doing it, um, but who knows. Uh, but I think it's so, so important that we say, okay, I need to grow in the virtue of compassion, and I need to get rid of the vice of judgment, right? That false judgment, that harsh, that, that uh, unhealthy judgment. Um, and then focusing on that and spending time praying about those things and saying, God, help me today to be a compassionate person. Call, like spirit convict me when I'm having that spirit of unhealthy judgment. Um, so those things are kind of the overall things as we're going through this season. And then you have this grid, right, with different categories and different daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually commitments, right? So spiritual commitments, this is obvious, right? These are the, the practices we've been going through, which we need to identify things that we will intentionally do that, enable, that, that help us to follow Jesus, so on a daily basis, what practice is going to, right now in the season of life you're in, connect you most to who God is and to following Jesus? Is it that you need to spend some time meditating on scripture? Is it that you need to give in to the prayer of examine, right, that we did, that way of reflecting on where God is in your life, what in life brings you um, closer to God, what brings you further away? And then you prioritize those. You say, okay, I'm going to do meditation every day. I'm going to do this, the daily examine, which, you know, we'll call it the weekly examine. I'm going to do it once a week. I'll sit down on Sunday night, and I'll look through my week and say, God, what, what were you doing in my life this week? Where were you? Where did I not feel you? And what was I doing at that time? Monthly, oh, what's a spiritual practice that you can put into place every month? Maybe a, t this, over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at solitude and silence. Maybe something like that can go in there where you're going to take an extended period of time to just disconnect from everything and just be alone with who God is, with God. Uh, quarterly, annually, I, I want to make a suggestion for quarterly and annually. Uh, for annually, I, try, I would really like for, to see, uh, for me, what I try and do is make sure that's tied into the community of faith. So like the Lenten fast, right? I'm going to commit to, with the body of Christ, participate in this Lenten fast, right? Or maybe, maybe uh, it is... Um, uh, you know, Advent. I'm going to spend Advent as a time where I really am engaged in what's going on. I'm connected and I'm uh, thinking deeply about where we are as a community of faith. That, that sort of thing. Um, and then quarterly um, is one of those things where I don't, I, I don't, I process time different than most people. Uh, I find myself oftentimes saying the other day to Aaron, and it was a story when I was 13 years old. Um, so quarterly is one of those, like, if you're a business person and you understand the world by quarters, then that might be a really helpful time frame for you. If you're not, it probably doesn't mean anything, right? So that one is sort of like a, I, I just see it as like a semi-yearly, what am I going to do, right? And so uh, what does that look like? What are some things that can be more long? And like, so that might be uh, like a day of, 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 a, a day of prayer. Prayer, taking a day away from uh, everything and just spending a day in prayer, uh, something like that. Uh, but like I said, don't get too caught up on quarterly. It was how Machia does it. I don't know. Uh, relational. Now this is uh, something that is, is a little bit, it, this isn't now moving into, we've stopped talking about being connected to God and following Jesus, right? And now we're talking about relationships. No, this is still in this rule of life. How am I going to organize my life in such a way that I am intentional about following Jesus. So what are the relationships that help you most follow Jesus? So daily, that one's hard. I mean, most likely that's going to be our family, our spouse, our children, uh, but it may be a coworker. It may be for a season you want to be really intentional with someone you work with, uh, maybe who is not a believer uh, and you want to spend time getting to know them, uh, intentionally being kind to them, intentionally loving them. Or maybe it is someone who is going to just feed you. It can be either way. Um, weekly, um, that 
should hopefully, uh, if it's not right now, I think that should become like a Sunday school class or a small group. Um, I know I'm making suggestions for your rule of life, but it's hard because we're also a church. Uh, and as a church, we talk about these core values that we have, these cornerstones, and one of them is community-oriented um, and biblically, spiritually formed, community-oriented, missionally-minded. And we say the two most important practices, consistent participation in Sunday morning worship, and what's number two? Involvement in some sort of small group, some sort of Bible study. I just think that's so important. And I think on a weekly basis. Um, uh, but you can change that if you like meet with a group every other week. You can say bi-weekly. You can write that in there. But I just think getting together with a group of people is so important. Monthly, who are the relationships, the friendships in your life that you need to intentionally seek out because they are good for your soul? And we get so caught up in being busy and whatnot. And we kind of, especially when you get into this place where you're like, you're, 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 you have kids, oftentimes you're in this place where you just hang out with whoever's convenient. You know what I mean? Whoever's kids are doing the same thing at the same time that your kids are. Um, but we need to be intentional about our relationships. Who is it that you need to make sure every month I need to get together with them, with him, with her, because they feed my soul, they make me a better person, they care for me and point me to Jesus. Once again, quarterly, whatever, and then annually. I don't know what you would do on annually for relational. Um, I, the one suggestion that, I, I, that I've seen is being more intentional about like a, a, a spouse thing. Like I'm going to annually get away with my spouse and do something like that uh, to make sure that we are where we're supposed to be. Um, but for kids, like, you know, annually go on a youth ret retreat or something. You know, that could be one of them, but... Uh, you know, those big picture ones get a little hard. Missional, how are we living in such a way? If we're going to follow Jesus, it has to be living missionally. Look at the life of Jesus. He spent his life touching people, uh, ministering to people, loving people, serving people. So we cannot have a life that's disconnected from that. So missionally, daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually. Let me give you just a couple of suggestions in case you have no idea, like, like you're really lost on this. Daily. I think a great daily practice is praying for someone who is not a believer that you are in contact in your life. That doesn't mean you're going to talk to them every day, right? It's not like you have to then go and, and find them. No, no, no. But just saying I'm, every day I'm engaged in the mission in some way. Or this is on your drive to work. Saying daily I'm going to commit to saying, God, open my eyes to see people the way you see them. To not just be caught up in my own stuff, but to be looking at people and, 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 and guide me through this day to people who need your love. Uh, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually. Once again, one small suggestion. One of those categories can be, should be, something that is tied into the life of the church. We have a lot of missional stuff here. Your missions should not be disconnected from your local church holistically, right? They should feed each other. You should be feeding into the life of the church. So make sure that one of those is in there. Physical. One of the interesting things about the Benedictine rule is that it had to do with, in all of the rules, had to do with some physical component. They recognized that you could not just sit in one place and pray for, and then be a productive human being for a long period of time. Because then you'd become sedentary. It doesn't do well for your soul or your mind. So most uh, uh, monastic rules had some form of physical work that you had to do. Gardening, you know, building, making bread, uh, brewing beer was a big one for a lot of uh, uh, monastic communities. Um, but something like that, something physical, and so this is just a way... I. I hesitated putting this one on there because of the self-help society that we have and how that, that one I feel like will be the one that some of us are probably most concerned with, you know what I mean, and use the most of, but I still think it's important. We have to take care of our bodies, um, but here, so here's my challenge, and I don't know how this fits into daily, weekly, monthly. Are there ways that you can mix some sort of physical exercise with a spiritual discipline, right? Going on a walk alone. Uh, Listening to worship music while you work, work out. Listening to a podcast or a sermon that can uplift your soul. Something like that. Um, but I do think it's important to, to uh, take care of our bodies. And the, all the rule of life's also did. And then financial. Um, I think having a healthy financial uh, practices is absolutely 100% an aspect of following Jesus. If we have no, no self-control of the way we spend money, um, that is, does not bode well for our discipleship as a whole. Um, and so we, uh, 
need to be thinking deeply about how we do that. Um, And so what does it look like for us to make daily financial decisions about how we are following Jesus and how that impacts it? Um, And I think that one is really important because of how it can snowball right? Um, I love, you know, we, we've been talking about this because we're in this giving series, um, but it, and so I've said it a lot recently, but don't take that as, I don't really mean it. Financial peace, the work that Scott and Kathy Walton do through that is an unbelievable ministry. Um, he was telling me just the other day, we were talking, and he was talking about how they, they, he keeps all his data because he's a data guy, um, and, you know, the, it, during their time there, just while they've their time here, just while they've been doing the class, over $500,000 in debt has been paid off. It is very, very, very hard to live an intentional discipleship life where you are about God's mission and about being a believer when you are drowning in debt. Um, That is going to consume you and overwhelm uh, your ability to follow when God's calling you to do uh, in your life, right? Um, and so making good financial decisions is important. Okay, hopefully that makes the rule of life more clear, but in case I just am terrible at communicating this, I want you guys to talk about it for a while. So if you have questions and, and I didn't answer it, ask people around the table. They'll pr- they're probably smarter than me. They can figure it out. So let's go into our first small group time and let's focus in on the rule of life. All right. Hopefully, the rule of life is a bit clearer now. Um, one of the things that uh, my wife uh, is, uh, helped me remember to say, uh, because she's a very different person than me, and I don't think this way, but t- to her, something like this is very over- overwhelming because you have to fill in every single box, right? But it's okay if you're like, I, you know what, I just can't think of a physical practice that I can commit to right now every day. That's fine. It's okay to have blank boxes. If you're like, I don't even know what a quarter is, that's, leave that whole row blank. It's just about... It's just me, is it? Everybody else thinks about quarters? I think about church seasons, right? The seasons, anyway. Um, uh, so it doesn't have, don't, don't get OCD about this thing and making sure everything's filled out perfectly. Like if there's something that you're like, ah, you know what, I don't know what to do quarterly financially, you know, that's fine. That's fine. This is just about taking a more methodical, intentional approach toward following Jesus with all of who we are in all of the areas of our life. So uh, don't let that get away from you. Okay, so um, we are uh, in our storyline. I, do, I don't have time to go through and, and, and do it like we do most of the time, but last time we were together, we talked about the incarnation. Uh, we talked about this huge event that happened where God himself became human, fully God, fully man. Um, And so today we are going to talk a little bit and look a little bit at Jesus's life um, in in a way that only makes sense to me and hopefully by the end will make sense to you. Because one of the, because there's just to start out, the way we're going to approach this and one of the ways we're going to talk about this is through looking at the law and us. Um, that it probably makes no sense of why we would talk about that to look at Jesus' life, but maybe it will by the end. Um, it, one of the questions that we always have, is, uh, uh, that people always have in the church is, okay, what is the Old Testament? How do I, how do I as a Christian over here relate to this stuff that's happening over here? Particularly one of the big hot topics is the Christians and the law. Christians and the, the Messianic law uh, that, that happened here at Mount Sinai. Um, what is that? And there's some camps that say that, you know, that's just all gone. Jesus came and erased all of that, um, and they take Jesus in chapter uh, six, chapter five, six of Matthew, where he says, uh, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, that he fulfilled all of it, and therefore it doesn't matter for us, right? Um, then there are others who have a different approach. Well, I want to talk about um, how is it that we view the law through the lens of Jesus, right? What does that have to do? And I think there are three ways of understanding how Jesus interacts with the law. Um, and I read, a, there was a, a professor of mine whenever I was an undergraduate who wrote a book about this, and he uses um, light and glass as a, an image for how the three ways in which Jesus interacts with the law. And so we're going to go through those, and, and hopefully you'll have an understanding, and then it'll make sense. But um, the first one, the first ask, the first way in which the law interacts with Jesus as it's coming from, you know, Mount Sinai to Jesus, what happens 
and then how do we relate to it? The first one is Jesus the filter. Jesus the filter. The best, or not the best, the, the uh, metaphor um, that my professor used to use was sunglasses. Uh, good sunglasses, what they do is they block out certain kinds of harmful, damaging frequencies of light. Um, that's as far into the metaphor as I can go uh, because I don't understand anything beyond that. But that's the idea. This idea that's, that uh, it doesn't stop light completely from getting in, right? But it just, it, it, certain things come to an end. And so um, let's give an example here, okay? In the, Mosaic, in the Mosaic Law, we had the sacrificial system, right? We had these sacrifices that happen, okay? The sacrifices were a consistent and significant part of being a part of the people of Israel. There were uh, daily, to go to the rule of life, there were daily, weekly, monthly, seasonally, because I don't understand quarters, and yearly interactions with this sacrificial system, right? You had everything from when you were in Jerusalem, something had happened, maybe you would send, or maybe you had something on your heart, you would bring a sacrifice to the temple, right? That was this sort of happening all the time. And then all the way to, you had this yearly festival called the Day of Atonement, where this idea of there was this grand forgiveness that was being announced, okay? Now, the sacrificial system has changed in what Jesus did, okay? We can all agree with that? You don't want Marty and Silverio and I sacrificing goats on your behalf, right? Hopefully. Um, and uh, it has changed, but it would be false to say that it has ceased. It would be false to say that it has ceased completely. Our salvation is still dependent upon a sacrifice. It is just not an ongoing sacrifice. It is not a repeated sacrifice. So while the practice of sacrifice comes to an end in Jesus, the fulfilled reality of that practice continues, right? Um, Hebrews 10.18, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary because Jesus offered himself up once and for all, right? There was this once aspect. So the sacrificial system, this idea, this practice of sacrifice is something that is no longer practiced, but it is still a, a reality in our salvation. It is still a significant factor. It is just not repeated. Another example is the Mosaic food laws, right? So in, in the law, there were these um, food restrictions. You are supposed to eat this, not supposed to eat that, okay? Now, thank God that that no longer applies directly to us in the same way, right? Because bacon is delicious. Um, <laughs> but, but the purpose of that law was to set apart the people of Israel. And so while the food restrictions have come to an end in Jesus, the principle of being set apart has continued. In Mark chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus says this, And he called, to the people, he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And, what he had, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said... What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. So 
Jesus is saying, look, 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 what's going to set you apart is not what you eat, it's going to be how you live. The food itself was never about what's defiling, it was about setting apart, it was about making sure these people were different and, and everyone would see that, but the people of, of, of Jesus, the church, is going to be set apart by something different. Okay? And also this goes into the idea of the people of God is not going to be a culturally um, uh, monoculture, uh, mono right? It's going to be diverse. It's going to spread to all peoples, but that's a second thing. But, so the idea with this is one of the ways Jesus acts as, as interacts with the law is he doesn't put an end to them, but he fulfills them, and that fulfilled reality continues, right? Now after Jesus, we are not tied to the culture of the people of Israel and by their, the things that identified them in their culture, like their food restrictions. No, now, now we can, it, the gospel goes into every culture, but we are still called in every one of those aspects to be set apart from the general culture, right? Whether that's in America, whether that's in Kampala, whether that's in Hawaii, you're allowed to express your Christianity in the culture you're in, but you're still supposed to be distinct by how you live, by how you act, right? Does that make sense? A week, yes, but let's keep going. Um, the second metaphor is Jesus the lens. Jesus the lens. A lens focuses light. Uh, it brings things into clarity. It, 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 it focuses light in such a way that you can see more clearly. Um, one of the things Jesus does, one of the ways Jesus interacts with the law, is he centers in on the actual heart of the law, right? Let me give you an example. Recovering the Sabbath. Jesus was continually criticized for breaking the Sabbath. Um, and... Because he would heal people on the Sabbath. Or him and his disciples one time were walking by a grain field and they ate some grain on the Sabbath. And, and that was considered work. But one of the things that we see Jesus continually doing, let me put Sabbath down, um, is when, when you had the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Law didn't just transfer from here to Jesus' day without anything happening to it as this pure, timeless vessel. No, what happened was things were added to and around the laws that made them sometimes more uh, strict, sometimes changed the focus of them. And one of the things Jesus continually did throughout his ministry was bring the focus back to what the law actually said. Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The intention of the Sabbath was never to be a burden for humankind to restrict them from doing life-giving things. But the way that the Mosaic Law and the way that time had added to that made it to where the Sabbath was this burden. You couldn't do anything, even heal or help, or if you were hungry, make food for yourself. And so Jesus clarifies. He brings a focus in on what the center of the law is. Does that make sense? Do you see that? Uh, Jesus is removing all of the external traditions that added on to the law and centering in on what, the, what, what actually God cares about in this aspect. Um, God does not want us to uh, not heal someone or not go to the hospital if we're sick on the, because it's the Sabbath, right? That's, a, that's not a life-giving thing. God created the Sabbath, as you go, if you look back in the story of Exodus, because we weren't, God did not create us because he wanted slaves, he did not create a, 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 a whole earth full of people because he wanted uh, these, these little minions that he could work all the time. That was not the point of creation. Sabbath was a reminder for us that we are beings who are supposed to rest, who are supposed to sit and enjoy the presence of our God and our creator. We are not supposed to constantly uh, be doing things um, we are not supposed to define ourselves by productivity or by our doing only, right? Um, we are supposed to be people who can sit and receive and be still. And I think particularly the Sabbath was supposed to be, as we, as, it's very clear, it's, it's silly to say, but it's supposed to be a day where we rest and recuperate. And sometimes that involves doing something. 
And God's, it was, the, the intention was never that you wouldn't do something life-giving on the Sabbath, like worship. For, many, for me, cooking. I love to cook. That is a rejuvenating activity. And so sometimes on the Sabbath, I will spend the day cooking um, and making a big meal because that's life-giving. And so Jesus puts the center back on what the purpose is. The purpose is for us to do things that connect us with our community, with our family, with our God, and bring life. Okay, the last aspect here is Jesus the prism. Jesus the prism. A prism refracts or bends light. Um, And this is probably the least known aspect of how Jesus interacts with the law. Um, In Matthew 5, 21 through 48, there's a collection of Mosaic laws and Jewish traditions uh, that Jesus is is confronted with, Um, uh, you know, that or that he is, is interacting with. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. You'll be familiar with this, so if you don't have your Bible, it's fine. It's these sayings. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, Later, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce, but I tell you, right, this, this sort of back and forth that's happening. Um, and in this, this is one example of Jesus acting as the prism, because one of the things Jesus does is he takes the laws like anger or murder and elevates them, makes them more stringent, does not lessen the demand of the law, but actually heightens it. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. You have heard that, I, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better uh, that you lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus acts as a prism at times when it comes with the law, not lessening the demands of the law, but actually heightening them, making them more stringent. One of the things when when you look at the story of the Bible the way we're doing it, you start to realize that, of course, Jesus would heighten the law because we are the ones who have the Holy Spirit in us. It's not like Jesus is going to come and lessen the law when we're more capable than the people of Israel to follow the law, right? Because we have the Spirit. This is one of the huge problems with this theological uh, and somewhat distinctly Methodist, but it goes beyond that, uh, a theological understanding that um, God is love, right? God is love, and God is not concerned with all these different ways, these, these individual sins in your life. God is love, and Jesus came to show us that, right? You know this idea. It doesn't matter um, what you do, how you act. God loves you, and you can, you can keep living that way because Jesus came to die for you and forgive you. I'm just convinced that that strain of Christianity has never actually looked at Jesus or read the Gospels. Because you will not come away with that understanding of who God is or what Jesus came to do by listening to what Jesus said. Jesus did not come and say, look, I'm the revelation of God's love. No longer do you need to worry about how angry you get or how you look at one another. If you have lust in your heart, don't worry about it. I love you and I forgive you and that's all there is to say about it. That's not the teaching of Jesus. Jesus came to not lessen the demands of the law. He fulfilled some of them. Some of them continue right through and he heightened others. Jesus is concerned with how we live our, heart, our lives. He's concerned with the state of our hearts, our minds, our actions, our relationships. 
All of it. He did not come to lessen that, but to heighten it in a way. Now, absolutely God is love. Absolutely Jesus came because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, right? We know this. But that, it, it, it's ridiculous to take that and then stop and say, that's Christianity for you. Because that doesn't take into account actually who Jesus was. The actual person of Jesus. His actual life. He actually said things. He did things. He healed people. Sometimes when he healed them, he turned and said, he, he said, hey, go and sin no more. He didn't say, go and know that I love you for who you are and all that you do, and you don't need to change one bit, right? Jesus is not the person writing in your, your high school or middle school yearbook, never change, stay awesome, right? <laughs> That's not Jesus. Jesus is saying, you are broken and sinful, and I love you. I love you. But I don't, love you so, I don't love you in the way that says stay in your brokenness. I love you in a way that says I want better for you. Right? When Jesus comes and lives this perfect life on earth, it absolutely transforms what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Right? Hebrews chapter 1 says this. Chapter 1 verse 1. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Long ago, and in many times, in many ways, God spoke through the prophets. God spoke through the Mosaic law. One of the distinct differences, and this is why I wanted to talk about the law in relation to Jesus' life. One of the distinct differences of before Jesus and after Jesus is the focus, the loci of what it means to be in a relationship with God. The loci, the, 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 the focal point, is not the law anymore. This still has bearings for us, right? This is still important. We are still called not to murder, not to commit adultery, to honor our mother and father. That, that stuff still remains, and, and Jesus interacts with it. But the loci of our spirituality is the one who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the center of, of, of how it is we have a relationship and grow in a relationship with God. And there is, there is a, a, a difference between those two things. There's a difference between those two things. And it's very important that we recognize because sometimes, and it's, it's, it's dangerous and it's hard, and things like the rule of life can make it even more so if you're not careful. It's very easy to have the law be something that is done externally, right? That is this thing that you can say, I'm checking off these things on a list, but internally, it's at a distance. You don't have a genuine relationship with God, a genuine desire. Your heart's not transformed. You say, I want to, to love God more and more. I want to be in his presence. I rejoice in that. And if you look at the Psalms, you can see the difference of someone who is externally following God and internally, right? Because the, the, the laws can be things that you're just like, well, this is just a, I just got to do these things because then I get into heaven or something like that, right? But then you have the Psalms where they say, I rejoice in your commands. And I long to learn your statutes, right? That's an internal relationship. But the law is not the focus. As Christians, the center of our relationship with, with God, the center of how we pursue being spiritual people is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the exact imprint of God's nature manifest here. We talked about this in the um, incarnation when we met a, like a month ago, whenever that was. 
Um, but it's so significant that God came and lived here and showed us in a way that we can understand what it means or, or who he is and what he's like. But it's also so significant for us to continue our focus on that. We don't kind of say, okay, let's work backwards now and let's follow back to the law, right? We are focused here on the life of Jesus. Um, and that, that changes things a little bit. To, to illustrate that difference, let's go to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. The gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. There's this beautiful hymn here about who Jesus is and about what he is. And there's so much in this passage that we could dive into. But it begins, this hymn, with he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Uh, Jesus is that exact imprint, right? The radiance of the glory of God. He is the image, the, the icon made, made visible of this invisible God that we cannot see. Um, and this gospel has gone out. Now, but I want to focus on not the theology of all of that, just see where that is. But look at Paul. Paul describes his ministry next. He says, here's what my aim is to see done, right? This is what he says. Now I rejoice in my suffering for you, and I am completing in my fl flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body, that is the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with all his strength that he powerfully works in me. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Go through Paul's letters. Next time you're, you're going to start reading, start in Romans. Circle every time you see the words in Christ, in him, in Jesus. It'd be a good discipline. Just underline it, do something. Notice how often that is central to what Paul is writing about. Because the central aspect of being a Christian is being connected to the living, risen Christ. The actual God who came down as the image of the invisible God showed us what it means to be fully human, 
and fully God, right, displayed this for us so that we could see it and then we could become in that. We could become partakers of that kind of life. That is this abundant life, that everlasting life that John talks about. That is what Second uh, Peter talks about when he says we may become partakers of the divine nature. That is what Paul says in Philippians when he says, I'm striving for the power of the resurrection, It's living in connection to and becoming like the Jesus who was actually here, who lived and displayed it, right? And that is why when I talk about this, I like to talk about it in contrast, right? The law is good and is still active, but what's so much better is Jesus. And the center of our relationship has to be Jesus. If our relationship, if our Christianity is simply external, we are not disciples of Jesus, Because the hope of glory is Christ in us. Not that we've done some things that Christ did or we've been connected to some people who were called Christians. The hope of glory is this internal dwelling of Jesus that affects how we live and is we grow into that more and more by intentional methodical habits, right? By making commitments like the rule of life. But we cannot replace Jesus with that. We cannot make a a new Christian law that keeps things external. Our reading this week, the practice we're going to be practicing is solitude and silence. Solitude and silence, prayer, these disciplines are so important because our spirituality must get into the inner workings of our being. And man, that just seems to happen in in different ways when we get alone with God. When we get alone with the risen Jesus and we have to deal with what's going on in here, right? And the reality of who God is, I, one of the, the best spiritual practices I have to this day is taking days where I just go away and, and turn off everything and just spend a day in prayer. And it's difficult and it's not fun. I wouldn't describe them as fun, relaxing days, right? The first four hours sometimes are spent just being like, well, it's just me here by myself going crazy, right? And you have to like sort of, there's this threshold you have to fight for. But, I, but so many times when I do this, you, you get to this point where all of a sudden something that you, your mind has been intentionally trying not to let you focus on, you've run out of other things to think about and plan for and check off your list, and then you have to face that thing. And what that thing is is something inside of you that's not being connected to your identity as a person in Christ with Christ in you, dwelling and making you become more and more like him, more and more fully human, more and more the person that God created you to be. And in solitude, you just seem to discover those things. In silence, with disciplines of prayer, you come into connection with that. I think that we can drastically used to recover these ancient practices of things like rule of life, these these disciplines that we have. But if we are going to approach them as a new law, a new way to make ourselves look spiritual while on the inside we remain untouched, we are just, there's no point. That story has been told, right? That story has been told, and if you want, go read the books of Kings and see how it turns out. It's not a great one. It's not a great one. It's not something you want to emulate in your life. (laughs) Jesus came and dwelt among us so that he could make this abundant life possible. So that he could bring us in and under him. Next week we'll look at the cross and look at how Jesus covers us with his sacrifice and his resurrection. But he came also so that he could be in us. The big transition between the law of the old, like in the Old and New Testament, one of the things that you see the prophets often talking about is this hope that there would be a new covenant. And that this new covenant would not be like the former covenant. The one that was continually broken, was continually rebelled against because it was external. They looked forward to a time when God would put that inside the hearts of his people. 
The law would become an internal thing, and we would be able to follow it through the power of the Spirit. As Methodists, we believe that sanctification is possible, right? We have a very positive view of salvation, meaning we believe that salvation is not just forgiveness of sins and then you're left in your sin until Jesus comes again. We believe that salvation is the transformation of the whole people. We believe in prevenient grace. God is the one who initiates and draws us to himself. Justifying grace. God is the one who forgives our sins and restores us into relationship with him. Sanctifying grace. God is the one who continues to transform and sanctify and perfect us. We don't like that perfect word anymore. It's really popular in Wesley's day. He loved it. Uh, But, you know, we, we like to say transformed or sanctifies, you know, makes us more holy, makes us more like Jesus. And we believe in glorifying grace. That it is still only through God's grace that we will be glorified and brought into the kingdom for eternity. We believe in the whole, that's that's the act of salvation. That's what Jesus came to do. Not just to forgive your sins and then see you in heaven. He He came to make us more like him. For him to be in us and us to be in him. Over the reading of the solitude, there's several different ways to practice it. There are, that he gives, very practical ways, you'll see. Um, some are more long-term, like take a day, take a couple hours. Some are these small moments of solitude. I really encourage you to stretch yourself. If you're like me, a 15 minutes of solitude is nothing, right? That, like, that's, I'm just getting comfortable because of the last time I had to talk to a human, right? Uh, and so, so don't, uh, like, if you are an introvert like me, you're going to need to say, okay, I need to plan now and say in the next two weeks, I'm going to need to find hours that I can carve out. If you're an extrovert, 15 minutes may sound like just the most painful thing, uh, but still try and, try, try and uh, stretch yourself, because I really, really believe that there's something about getting alone with your God with your Bible and yourself and saying, here I am, God, for the next hour, I've got nothing planned. Speak to me. Listen to me. Be with me in this moment. Uh, I have found in my life, and I think the the spiritual tradition of Christianity shows um, that there's something that internalizes truths in that moment that is not replaceable by learning more We are more biblically literate than Christians have ever been today. We're still not great at it, but we are still more biblically literate uh, than than Christians have ever been because we are more literate than Christians have ever been before in history. Uh, But I don't think that means we know the truths here more than any Christians ever have. I don't think that means that our relationship with God, uh, our identity as being in Christ is more into our bones than it has been in history. Right? That stuff takes time to seep in. It takes time to seep in, and it seeps in when we seek the presence of God. We're going to go into our, our last small group time, and then we'll dismiss from there. Um, and, and I wanted you to focus on the law, but also focus on this idea of how is it that we take this external stuff. It's so easy to get caught up in those routines of doing it and make them internal. Let's uh, go to our small groups.